Welcome to the Chris Rawl Show, where, shockingly, I am Chris Rawl. It has arrived. We are finally here. A week of actual, real, live football games that are not preseason, that are not practices. They're real, live college football games. Yes, they're kind of just dog shit teams playing, but who cares? One of them's Nebraska Northwestern, my favorite team. It's here. A week later, we're going to have college football full bore screaming right into our faces. And a week after that, we're going to have the NFL. It is the perfect time of year. I cannot wait. It is the perfect time to go and sign up for my newsletter. If you've not already at chrisrawl.com, just go and subscribe there. It's the perfect time to consume anything I've been doing. Uh, Last week, we released a Bob Dylan essay on this channel that I read and West and my producer put a bunch of stuff in. It's cool. It's good. If you haven't listened to it, you should go and listen to it. If you want to read the words, you can also read them at chrisrawl.com. They're just there at the home side. Uh, A lot of things going on. A lot of football to be talked about, which today's show is going to be about because almost every show is about football because why would it not be? So let's get into what I want to talk about, the role of projection within life, within sports gambling, and most importantly, within football. How is it possible to predict what someone is going to become? It's a question that I think about a lot, not just for sports. This is something that I think about deeply within my own life, how it pertains to me and how it pertains to the people around me, because life and sports in unison are filled with projections. And the more that you try to do that, the more that you think about that, I think you arrive at the destination that I arrive at, which is trying to understand what someone could be is a really, really tough proposition. And that includes me trying to understand what I could be, what I am, what I'm going to become, all those kinds of things. So this has been percolating in my mind for many times over the years, probably like once I get into my 30s is when I really start thinking about this as kind of a higher level concept. My 20s is just filled with Taco Bell and maybe not not as much deep thought as I do over the last decade-ish or so. Um, and I was reading a book by the author Daisy Johnson. The book is called Everything Under It's School. Uh, again, this is a reading podcast. I forget to mention that at the top. It's a 20% reading podcast, 80% sports podcast. But I was reading a book from her and there were two, one line and one paragraph that kind of really stood out and how they pertain to that thought process in my mind. Just the process of change for me and for others and trying to project for me and for others who we are going to become. So I'm going to read them together in unison, and then I I want you to really staple these to your mind as the show goes on, because I think they're really good touchstones and starting points for what I want to talk about. So this is the first line. I need to forget the person you were and instead record who you have become. And this is the second part. The way I see it, he said, life is a sort of spinning thing like a planet or a moon going round a planet. Do you understand? Yes, she said, though she wasn't sure she did. Life is like that. Sometimes it's facing one direction, but only for a second, and then it's spinning and spinning, revolving on its base so fast it's impossible to really see. Except sometimes you catch a glimpse, and you sit there, and you know that's what it would have been like if things had gone differently. That is the way it could have been. End quote. So I love those. They're two independent things. They were not, they were taken from different parts of the book. 
but I think they're really cool in unison together. Because the first one I think about a lot. Uh, just, you think that you have good gauges for people, but then you also kind of forget that people are always changing, and that includes yourself. And so sometimes I can get stapled to the past and think, oh yeah, well wait, no, this is the person that I, I know that you are because I, I've known you for this amount of time. And then if you're honest, you understand, oh no, this person has changed. You know, I need to kind of maybe forget the person you were and instead record who you have become. Sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative. Same thing applicable to my own life. I'm sure there are a lot of things that I do that 10 years ago people liked and now they're gone or vice versa. It's just the constant flow of changing within existence. Uh, the constant just, I'm trying to find my footing through life and that is a process that never ends until you die. So think about those two things, the, the process of change and the process of projection, kind of that idea of the spinning world, the spinning planet. And there's a million different paths you can go down in every way, shape, and form. Sometimes, you know, call it nostalgia, call it whatever you want. You catch a glimpse and you go, oh, that is what it would have been. But it's not necessarily what it is. I want to do a, a thought exercise just to kind of stimulate the, the brain juices, so to speak. And I want, to, I, I want you to think about your own life as I kind of talk about my own. Uh, as a starting point, I want you to think of yourself five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago, depending upon your age. But I want you to be able to go back within adulthood and kind of compare who you were versus who you have become. That first line from Daisy Johnson. And more importantly, for purposes of today's show about projecting potential or projecting change, I want you to think and identify things about yourself in present day that you were really confident were going to happen and whether or not those actually did happen. And maybe you're different from me as you go and think about this over the next few minutes as I'm talking. Uh, but my personal projection system could not be more off. That's something that I've come to realize over the last 15 years because Based upon my 21-year-old self and what I thought and loved and did at the time, you would to go back in time and ask, okay, who do you think you're going to be at 26 and 31 and 36? I promise you I would have been off in almost every way uh, as far as projecting who I would become at 36 in present day. There's a lot of examples within that. You know, There's a lot of behaviors that were really important to me at 21 that literally don't ever exist. There are things that I do now that I never did then that have become really important foundational principles and activities and things that I love in present day. Back when I'm 21, you know, I'm in college at UVU and I'm way into fast food. Fast food's a great, that's a great starting point, which sounds dumb and you laugh, but fast food was great. It was cheap. It was easy. It tasted good. I didn't care that I felt like shit because you don't ever think about that when you're 21. You're just like, yeah, doesn't matter. I'll get over it in two seconds. So I eat Taco Bell and Carl's Jr. and McDonald's and all these things. And if you were to ask myself, okay, do you think that you'll still be doing this in five years, 10 years, 15 years? I'd be like, oh, well, yeah, maybe not to the same extent, but this will always be something here because it's cheap and it's easy and it tastes good. And now I'm here at 36 and I'm just like, oh yeah, I don't, I don't do that. That's just something that has shifted within my life as I've become more health conscious and kind of gone out of my way to go like, oh, you know what I don't like? When my body feels like shit. That's something I found out in my 30s. A little bit more aware of that. Call it a natural uh, process of understanding your body 
better as you age and also really understanding the things that kind of shut you down as you age. But that's one thing that very different that I would not have predicted. When I was 21, I was way into video games, played them all the time. Halo, the original Halo was like probably the biggest thing in my life. Me and my friends, we would play it every night, all night. Meet up at a house at eight o'clock, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night, play till 6 a.m. Repeat, repeat over and over and over and over. This was years. It was so fun. I still look back very fondly upon that time frame. Um, outside of that, you know, I'd play Madden or NHL or whatever the games were on PlayStation or Xbox at the time because I just I enjoyed video games. And like a switch was flipped almost into my mid-20s. There wasn't some transformational moment where I went, no, video games, I hate them and they're bad or they're dumb. There was nothing like that. Just for whatever reason, one day I was just like, oh, I don't really enjoy doing this like I used to. So cold turkey, just I don't do this anymore. You know, I haven't played a video game in over a decade which is way weird when I think about my 21-year-old self. And if you went back to me and said, you think that you will be playing video games? Maybe not to this extent, but do you think they will ever not be a part of your life? I guarantee you I would have said, no, no way. This is always something that I'll do because it's something that I enjoy. But I change, even in ways that I can't actually project down the road. Used to play basketball every day. Now that's gone. Takes a toll on the body. I've talked about that on the show. Talking about things in present day that are different versus uh, 21. Got really into meditation, which my 21-year-old self, I promise, would have laughed to the moon about. Like, you sit and just either close your eyes and try not to think, or you sit and stare at a wall, or you stare at a golf ball, or you touch a golf grip, and you, what, are you a pervert? What happened? Are you in jail? Have you been in jail for the last 15 years? That's what I would have think. But instead, it's become a really important thing that I value and I love, and it helps me in a wide variety of ways. Similar to the way that I perceived video games in a strange way, just, oh, no, this is a part of my life, and I like it, and it provides value in ways X, Y, and Z. That's what meditation has become in present day. Just the simple personal relationships. That's a big difference. I talk about this a lot with my friends because we'll have strange conversations on the golf course just about the human psyche and psychology and just emotions, all that kind of stuff of like, oh, it's, this is an interesting thread. Let's talk about this. Kind of what I do on this show, but with other people. And we're always talking about just the shift that occurs in what you value throughout life. Because I play with kids who are 16. I play with dudes who are 70, you know, just the entire spectrum. I'm pretty much in the smack dab middle of it. I'm always just kind of talking like, oh, yeah, well, this is an interesting subject. Let's talk about this. And it kind of crystallized in my mind just the differences that I have undergone of what I value in people around me, whether that's romantic partners. That's been a whole 15-year thing where that's changed drastically, just what I think is important and what I value and what I love. Same thing with friends. Um, Some things have remained the same in both of those facets, and some are worlds apart, you know? I've talked a lot about golf on this show. And golf's probably the number one thing as a 36-year-old that I laugh at. And if I rewind to 21, I go, this would be so funny to explain to myself about how into the sport I am and that it is the thing that I want to get up and do every single day over and over. And it's the thing that I think about. And it's the reason I got into meditation. It's the reason I do a lot of these things that I never did. It's the reason I stretch and do yoga and all these other things. And... I talk about it and think about it and try to improve upon it. And it's just, it's a dominating force within my life in a way that I love. 
It's a very funny thing to think about versus 15 years ago. Now, golf is a sport, as we think about the spinning world concept, and just, you catch a glimpse, you catch a glimpse, oh, what could have been? Oh, what you were versus what you have become, and recording those things. I played around on Sunday, and I finish up, and I'm just not satisfied with my score. I'm writing down 77. I'm like, I feel like I played better. And I have a thing that I do after every round, where I go shot by shot, and I think about what I was trying to execute and whether or not I actually executed in the way that I wanted. It's just a better way for me to understand outside of a score, which at the end of the day is the only thing that matters within an individual round. But over the course of time, I'm the process person. And if my process sound, my scores will come. So I go every single shot and I get a better gauge of maybe my score wasn't that good today, but I think that I played good golf. And if I continue to do that, I will score well. Or I could have shot a good score, and then once I go through that process and I think about it and I'm honest, I go, huh, I kind of lucked my way into a 70 today, and on a different day, this should have been a 78 because I got a lot of breaks and it was kind of a strange round. So after that Sunday round, I have the 77 and I do that. I go shot by shot and I'm thinking about it. I'm just like, oh, I actually played pretty good golf today, and the difference between me shooting a 77 today, which I did, and a 70 is virtually nothing. It's centimeters. It's lip out on this hole with a putt and it's a lip out on this hole with a putt and it's a putt that I hit here that finished a half revolution short and it's a steady diet of 20 footers that I hit that buzzed an edge and did this and deflected off a ball mark and did this and did this and did this to the point where I got to the end of it and I'm just like, ah, okay, you know, sweat it off. I'll pay out my money today. Lost it. Fine. But if I keep doing this, I'll be in a pretty good place. Um, think back to that quote, you catch a glimpse and you know that's what it would have been like if things had gone differently. That is a perfect embodiment of just how you have to approach golf to stay sane. Because the differences between rounds from a score perspective can be minuscule. Now, I, I tell you that golf process and story because I think it's a good jump from life and my life. And what you have been thinking about in the ways that you are different now compared to the past. I think it's a really good concept to apply because it is the way that I think about quarterbacks and their surroundings in football, as I've talked about a lot in the show, but the way that I think and process my own golf game and just this idea that the world is spinning really fast and you can always catch a glimpse of something, that is exactly how I think about NFL quarterbacks and their situations and how much goes into that, the million possible outcomes. And each one can be altered by even the slightest disturbance within that chain of go back to high school and college and who you're surrounded by, whether players, coaches, just people within your life, just the natural process that you yourself grow, not as a football player, as a person, just what you value and all that kind of stuff that I talked about in my own life. Much less once you get to the NFL and the chain becomes bigger, you have even more coaches and more players and just there's everything that's going into this. It's just endless change and endless repeated projections every single moment. You're just reassessing over and over and over and trying to project. Now, talking about the NFL, it starts kind of, if you want to say this is the point, it, I'd start with the NFL draft. You know, It's when you actually become an NFL player. It's projections to the maximum degree. And I've actually kind of become more lenient as I, I think about the NFL draft over the years. And my tendency in the past was always to make fun of just like, ah, oh, these dipshits, they're making tons of money. They have endless resources at their disposal, these GMs and scouts and front offices, and they're just whiffing left and right and left and right and left and right. How is this even possible? How are these people this bad at their job? 
And as I think about just my inability to understand the ways that I'm going to change in five-year spans or even two-year spans, depending upon my 20s or 15-year spans, all that kind of stuff, it makes a lot more sense if I apply that logic. Just like, oh yeah, okay. Well, even with all those resources and people working on this, how can you even attempt to understand what a 20-year-old is going to transform into? Period, in life, as I've shown with me, but much less within the high stakes, high pressure environment of the NFL. It's a whole other pressure cooker that I never had to deal with. My pressure cooker was, you know, the cooker that literally cooked beefy chalupas at Taco Bell that I would eat. Getting paid millions of dollars when I was 20, I don't know how I would work within that period, much less the immense and immediate pressure that is now on my shoulders of, okay, you're making $5 million a year. And in addition to that, here is a whole new NFL offense you have to learn. Here are a bunch of grown men that you're going against that are trying to tear your head off on any given play. Just a a really intense thing to throw someone who is it like kind of the the nexus of when you're going to really start changing drastically. That is the point that people enter into the NFL draft. So I'm reading something from Shio Kapadia today. I want to read it as we start moving from the NFL draft into what I want to talk about, which is gambling and especially MVP odds within the gambling world, and especially the people who dominate that list, which is quarterbacks in the NFL. So this comes from Shio Kapadia. It's about the draft. I think it's a really good starting point for just projections, and it's really damn hard. We should know by now that the draft is hard, really hard. Every team's fan base can point out their GM's worst misses. Tom Brady lasted until the 199th pick. Russell Wilson went 75th. Aaron Rodgers was 24th. Patrick Mahomes went 10th. Devontae Adams, 53rd. Aaron Donald, 13th. We could go on and on and on. Take a look at the first round picks from 2015 to 2019. Players who have had at least three years in the NFL. More than half of them would not be considered above average starters. A recent study by the 33rd team showed that just 31% of first round picks sign a second contract with the team that drafted them. That doesn't mean NFL teams are terrible at doing their job. It means there are a bunch of difficult to project variables in play, and the draft is all about making decisions under uncertainty. Teams who approach the draft without understanding and account for the uncertainty in their process will have an edge over the ones that fool themselves into thinking they're really good at picking players. Every year, we see players picked in the 20s who end up outperforming players picked in the top five or undrafted free agents winning roster spots over fourth round picks. Yet every year, once draft season rolls around, Teams convince themselves that they have identified safe or can't miss prospects when the truth is those labels are pretty much meaningless, end quote. So again, drafting is hard. And when you understand drafting is hard, you understand projecting is hard because that is what the process is all about. And I know this for a wide variety of reasons, some of which I've already mentioned. Just, I can't project things within my own life. If you came to me right now and said, Chris, what are things that you think are going to be happening in your life at 41 or 46 or 51? I could say some things and I almost guarantee you I would be wrong. I've gotten to the point where I just understand, yeah, I'm, I'm a go with the flow type person. Uh, I'm a put myself in position to try and maximize opportunity to experience things that maybe I will love, maybe I won't, but Just try and see, and if it turns into something, awesome. And if it doesn't, great, go upon your way, but 
I've just learned like I'm not going to project it within my own life. I'm not the person who sits here and goes, I need I need to be in this place in my professional life in this particular year, or I need to be here romantically in this particular year, or I need to have a family by this particular year, or this or this, this. I just that doesn't mean anything to me. And if anything, I think it kind of puts me in a strange spot of of trying to go out of my way to do something that maybe I don't necessarily want to do because if I did, I would do it, right? So I'm a huge gambler. You know this. World that is based upon projections, numbers, all the stuff I love. A world that has also taught me, you know what's freaking hard? Projecting and understanding numbers and how they pertain to sports. Um, and the start of every season, which we're here. The start of every season is two things for me as a gambler. The first one is 90% of my bets. It's just finding value as the number moves. A number better, more than a gut better, or I have these great uh, this great knowledge of the sport, and I always know who the best teams are going to be and who the worst teams are going to be against the spread, and so I bet accordingly. That's just, that's impossible. So to be sustainable and marginally profitable as time goes on, the approach for me is just, it's got to be numbers. It's got to be finding value within line movement. The second one that really is applicable to where we are right now, the start of the season is trusting my projections. That's the other 10%. The things that I really think, whether that's based upon actual numbers or whether that's based upon gut instinct and what I I think and feel. The early part of the season, there's a, a sliver of what I'm going to be doing that is really based upon that. Who do I think is going to be good? So the other day I'm going over the NFL MVP odds because the perverse side of me has just been the last couple of weeks as the season has gets or getting closer and closer. It's just been going down odds of everything and just staring at them and trying to will the season into existence. The other day I'm on the NFL odds page, NFL MVP odds page, sorry. And this page, you know, it's numbers based upon probabilities and projections for what all these players are going to be during the 2022 season. Not what they are going to be, what they can be. Better way of putting it is Daisy Johnson would, but. And the top seven within that, they're all quarterbacks. And as I went name by name and thought about them, and especially the one that I really want to talk about today, it's like, oh, this is, this is an interesting group of players. They're all damn good at football. They're also representative of the spinning world concept and how a player can emerge based upon their own skills, based upon their own situation, or usually at, at this level, a combination of both of those. Not always, but usually. And a person who's up there, I go, Patrick Mahomes, yeah, he's awesome. He's been great. I also get really envious of Patrick Mahomes' NFL trajectory so far because Aaron Rodgers is my favorite player, and he's had to wander the wilderness for a long time with his situation until Matt Elfer got here, and now I really like what Green Bay has been doing. But for a long time with McCarthy... It was like almost the team in the front office was working actively against their own quarterback. And Patrick Mahomes, who I love as a player, and I'm not saying this to diss him in any way, shape, or form. I also look at him and I go, man, you couldn't have walked into a better situation for a player who definitely has immense skill, like short list in the history of the NFL possesses what Patrick Mahomes does. You know, great player. You'd assume that based upon his skills and his physical ability, he'd be a great player anywhere. Now, within that though, it's interesting to think about hmm, what would it be like if he had gone to a different team that did not have one of the best play calls ever and 
Tyreek Hill waiting there and Travis Kelsey waiting there and one of the best offensive lines in football and just this ready-made machine that Alex Smith had already been awesome and succeeded greatly at moving the levers. Now they put Patrick Mahomes in and you saw Super Bowls. What would that look like if it was something different? It's just the spinning world thing. Again, I feel confident he would be really good at playing quarterback. I also don't know if we would be talking about him in this exact same way right now that we are if he had been drafted to the Jaguars and had gone through an Urban Meyer era and just the general dipshittery that Jacksonville has done since they've kind of been a franchise, definitely the last 15-ish years. Josh Allen, you know, right up there at the top. Odds on favorite to win the MVP this year, and for good reason. I think he's, well, he is a superstar, and I think he could even ascend to another level. I think the last portion of last season, and especially the two playoff games, just are kind of pointing to this trajectory that uh, you could be one of the best quarterbacks ever if you get consistent and if Buffalo continues to provide the structure they provided throughout your career. The two old guys, I mean, it can't be talked about enough with Rodgers and Brady. As you think about projections and you think about just, it's really hard to understand what people are going to become as they age. I mean, these guys kept dropping in their draft years to all-time, all-time, all-time quarterbacks. Most people believe Tom Brady is the best quarterback of all time. I believe Aaron Rodgers is the best quarterback of all time. Everyone will agree. These are two on the very short list of best quarterbacks who have ever played the game. One was drafted 199th and coming out of Michigan, Nobody talked about him. Nobody even had opinions. Nobody even was projecting because why would you? He was this gangly giraffe looking dude. There's the funny picture from his combine where he just looks like some goofus. And then 20 years later, you're like, oh yeah, you know, almost everybody thinks you're the best quarterback of all time. Who could have seen that coming? Well, nobody. Probably not even Tom Brady, if he's being honest. Rodgers, same thing, not as precipitous of a drop, but a dude who was supposed to maybe be in contention for number one and drops to 24. And then even sitting behind Favre and in practices, you're just like, I don't know, maybe. You never in a million years could have imagined that by 2011, he'd be winning his first of four MVPs. He would have a Super Bowl and a Super Bowl MVP under his belt. And he would be displaying not just physical ability, but the mental capacity to go with it that you're just like, what in the hell is this? I've never seen a quarterback like this. That was that experience. Joe Burrow, Russell Wilson, they're right there in the MVP odds stuff. Burrow looks like he could be the one to transform just the way the Bengals have been. Russell Wilson has been a great study of situation matters so damn much. His career, I would be so interested to see if it happened in a different vein. And it's not to say he does not have immense gifts and talent and ability, but there are a ton of people who possess those things, whether it's in football or in business or many different facets of life that get left by the wayside because they don't get plopped into the best possible situation or a really good situation. And Russell Wilson, he comes out, he's drafted in the third round. The Seahawks had signed Matt Flynn to be their starter that year. Do you remember? This is a really weird period of NFL football. And it was actually after Rodgers' first MVP season, 2011. Matt Flynn was the backup for the Packers. And Rodgers just torched everybody to the point where Green Bay had clinched everything going into week 17. So they start Matt Flynn in a meaningless game against the Lions. He comes in and throws for 500 yards. It was crazy. And everybody freaked out. It was one game. We knew nothing about Matt Flynn. The last we'd really seen of him was he was kind of this goofus quarterback at LSU winning a national championship. Seattle goes, yeah, we'll pay you starters money right now. They offer him a starter level contract. He signs it. So I'm like, okay, well, whatever. They draft Russell Wilson. Now we realize in camp, you couldn't have a better situation of a guy who definitely has 
ability and skill in Russell Wilson. Going against a quarterback we know is not an NFL caliber starter. At his best, he's a normal backup. At his worst, he's probably not even in your top two depth chart. So Wilson comes and shockingly, stunningly wins the the job in camp. Now he's starting week one, backed by the best defense that we've seen in a decade in the NFL, handing off to Marshawn Lynch, one of the best tailbacks. Just a framework for a team and an offense. It's like, all right, we don't need you to do a lot. Just don't mess up. Russell Wilson, you're really good at that. Make maybe a play a game or so. Take a deep shot off play action as Russell Wilson is really good at doing. And we can win a Super Bowl and play for another. That's what we've seen with Russell Wilson. I couldn't have seen that coming. Uh, I mean, I thought Wilson was awesome in college. First to NC State, then his last year at Wisconsin. There's also the stigma of short quarterback, you know. Can he stand in the pocket, do all these things? You never really know. The projections just, I have my own thoughts and feelings and opinions. They're wrong just as much as NFL GMs. I'll trump at the ones that I'm right on and then kind of ignore the ones I'm wrong on, just like GMs do with themselves and front offices do with themselves. Russell Wilson was one. I'm just like, I don't know. Maybe he'll be good. And then years later, I'm like, oh, yeah, this guy is really good. Now, the one guy who I want to talk about that I want to do a little bit of a deeper dive the guy who I bet to win the NFL MVP. It's probably my second favorite player to watch in the league right now behind Rodgers, Justin Herbert, quarterback of the Los Angeles Chargers. He is the person who I have circled as I talk about my own projections on things that I feel really firmly about in present day. May or may not be wrong. If I'm right, great, I'm going to win money. If I'm wrong, I'll burn this podcast from existence and pretend like it never happened. (laughs) But he is the one who I have circled this year as... The one who will ascend to the tippy-top echelon of NFL quarterbacks. It would not shock me if by season's end he is thought of as the best quarterback in football. That is how highly I think of Justin Herbert as a NFL quarterback. Now, there's a lot of reasons that I think this. And if we're talking about change and projection, this is the dude that I think we should talk about. Just as a reminder that like everybody screws up with this. Nobody really knows. Nobody really knows anything in life. I can't stress this enough. Whatever you think you know, you probably don't. I include myself in that. I talk and I think a lot. When you get to the end of the day and you're just like, do you know this for certain? I'll say no to 99.9% of things that I will ever talk about. Because you just, there's too much uncertainty bred into being alive. And even things that you're really knowledgeable and understand in depth, as I feel like I do with football, There is so much within that sport that I just go, holy shit, I never would have seen this coming. Justin Herbert's rise, let's start there. There's never going to be a greater example of quarterbacks being judged by their surroundings than Herbert at Oregon, where he played college ball for four years. Oregon Duck, big, huge, strapping lad. I mean, 6'6", 235 pounds. Now he gets into his senior season, and we know the physical stuff is there. But it's also just, it's so projection-based because we're watching him at Oregon where he's like, I don't know. He'll flash a throw here or there. This offense leaves a lot to be desired. I don't know. I don't feel comfortable saying this guy is definitely going to be great in the NFL. I don't feel comfortable saying he's going to be a complete bust. I just don't know. He starts 14 games his final year, his senior year at Oregon. Um, in, in eight of those 14 games, he does not exceed 30 passing attempts. Which... If I'm being fair, again, at the time, I'm not sitting there banging the drum going, why isn't Justin Herbert throwing 50 times a game? I'm just a fan who watches. I'm not a scout. I don't understand football at that high of a level. I just watch it and I'd go, oh, well, he does flash, but 
there's probably just maybe he struggles to process the field. Maybe the coaching staff just understands these are the areas that he can succeed and we want to make sure he doesn't make mistakes in others. Maybe we have good ground game. We want to lean on. I don't know. That's just kind of how I thought at the time. Now I look back on it and I go, what in the hell was happening? I mean, how is this even possible? The Oregon Ducks were not throwing consistently with one of the greatest arm talents that I have ever seen as a person. So he, he graduates. He's finishing his college career. Football fans, again, myself included, we have no idea what to expect moving forward from this immense, huge tank of a man who was viewed as somewhat erratic for reasons now I can't even remember. That was the perception of him coming out, a perception that I did not push back on. I was just like, yeah, he's probably, yeah, maybe he's just kind of erratic, and that's why they don't throw as much compared to other teams in a sport that is just dominated by passing offenses, even quarterbacks that are not that good. Now, again, we realize Herbert is an all-time arm talent. You put him back in college, you're like, okay, we should run the Mike Leach air raid. He should throw 70 times per game. That will put us in the best position possible to win. We know that now. We didn't know that because he's entering the draft. His contemporaries within that draft, it's Joe Burrow, who ends up going one of the Bengals. It's Tua Tagovailoa, who ends up going three to the Dolphins. And then it's Herbert, who ends up going six to Chargers. It's crazy to look back on. This is, he's been in the league for two seasons. If you want to talk about the way that projections can just whiff and things can change drastically, including our own understanding of what is happening, let's look at that situation. Because I don't remember anybody, with the exception of Chris Sims, who works for NBC Sports, who's my favorite NFL analyst, who was beating the drum for Herbert, 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 Herbert. Especially not anybody who pays close attention to college football, me included in that. Because Tua just, Torched everybody to the ground nonstop. Herbert, like I said, we didn't know a lot. We're going, what's going on? This Oregon offense is just clunky and weird. And Tua, yeah, he should go at number three and Herbert should go at six. That was the consensus opinion by virtually everybody. We all shared that. The consensus opinion was this is a project quarterback. Big physical tools, but we really have never seen that click on the football field. We've seen it in brief spurts, but you're going to need a hell of a lot more than that to survive in the NFL, not even as a superstar, but just to start out of the gate. We can't expect you to do that because it seems like you're going to take decent time to learn an offense and learn how to process and maybe refine your throwing mechanics and, and understand how to just hit stuff short and intermediate and long. And, and we're thinking, yeah, Herbert, he's probably got to learn all these things because we never saw these things consistently at Oregon. He's a project quarterback. So I have no expectations of him his rookie season. They have Tyrod Taylor there to start, and it's just like, yeah, okay. Good stopgap quarterback. He'll probably be there for a couple years, and then maybe Herbert can start in year three or something. Similar to like an Aaron Rodgers-style entry into the NFL or a Patrick Mahomes-style entry into the NFL. That changes greatly week two of his rookie season. You want to talk about a spinning world and a glimpse of something that happened that drastically alters what his going to happen moving forward. Team doctor, Tyra Taylor's got some discomfort and they're trying to shoot him up in his chest and the team doctor accidentally punctures Tyra Taylor, their starting quarterback's long, less than 30 minutes before kickoff against the Chiefs in week two of Justin Herbert's rookie season. 10 minutes before the game is about to begin, they go to Justin Herbert and they're like, uh, you're starting. We're going against the Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes, Super Bowl champions. Uh, you're going to have to go out there and let's let's talk about baptism by fire right now. I was way pissed because that is a game that I was watching that day and I had bet the Chargers well in advance. And then suddenly 10 minutes before kickoff, I learned 
something going on with Tyra Taylor, Justin Herbert will be the starter. And I'm going, what in the hell is happening? This is no, no. This project quarterback's going to come in and go against Patrick Mahomes. And I have a ticket on the Chargers prior to this news being announced, which drastically changed the value of the bet. Now I'm just sitting there going, this is stupid. This is just a total dickholing by the gambling gods. But I'm still watching the game because I want to watch this rookie presumably just look like a project quarterback, which he was not. We now know that. He throws for over 300 yards that day, two combined touchdowns, throws a pick, helps the Chargers stay in the game the entire time, does not look out of place. They take Kansas City to overtime before losing by a field goal. Immediately, and I mean immediately, caught everybody's attention. My eyes were just, they were popping out of my head. I'm like, okay, so what is happening? Why did we not know that he could do this right now? I, uh, he wasn't a superstar that day, but you're just like, well, there's a lot of things that are intriguing about this performance. And it only got better from there. And immediately, the one thing that just kept standing out to me as his rookie season wore on, the most amazing part in hindsight is I think about just perception and what we thought and trying to project who Justin Herbert is going to become. The physical tools, they always pop with Justin Herbert. We knew that at Oregon. We now know that greatly. I mean, they are immense. He is huge. He is fast. His arm talent is on the shortlist for the best in the history of the game. What is stunning and what we have seen is he has the mind and the ability to process the field to go along with it. That's been the part that really has not just stunned me about Justin Herbert as a young quarterback, but has really made me reassess what I think of him. And especially as I think about projections moving forward, I go, okay. So the two things that I value most in a quarterback is, can you do things when everything is in place and it's perfect? That's the processing. That's your Drew Brees. That's your Peyton Manning. And then the second part is, can you do things when there is jack shit happening and everything has broken down and nothing is working or the defense has jumped all over the play? That's the magic of Patrick Mahomes or Russell Wilson or Aaron Rodgers, that style. Now, the very best quarterbacks in the history of the game, they meet between both of those things. And they say, whatever this play demands of me, I possess the ability to do it. Physical ability to just make things out of thin air, great. Mental ability to just slice and dice and completely dissect the very best defenses from the pocket with my mind, great. So we see glimpses of that, but last year was, last year is when I truly started salivating. Just again, his second year in the league. Where he makes the leap by year's end, I feel very comfortable going, okay, this is one of the four best quarterbacks in football. I think at the end of last year, pick your poison as far as Mahomes, Rodgers, and Allen, but the vast majority of people are saying it's those three in some order. After that, there's a lot more debate for me. I've just, I go, I'm very comfortable putting Justin Herbert as that fourth player. He's one of the best quarterbacks in football, wherever you want to rank him. And that was despite playing behind a train wreck on the right side of his offensive line, just a constant sieve of hey whoever wants to run through here without any obstacle great go ahead and do it you know think back to their final game of the regular season the one they needed to win when max crosby had about 600 pressures just going against that right side storm norton their right guard they were just lining him up and it was just bowl over bowl over run around him do whatever you want and even in the midst of that herbert you remember the fourth quarter in overtime of that game a game that the chargers ultimately lose to end up not making the playoffs but herbert was magical in that game just fourth down conversion, high leverage throw again, 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 again. So now we're going into this year and that division I've honed in on because it's just another thing that makes me salivate. 
AFC West, the upgrades that Denver has made at quarterback with Wilson, that the Raiders have made with trading for Devontae Adams and, and shorting up their defense some. The Chiefs are just the Chiefs. You don't even need to talk about them. And then the Chargers with Justin Herbert, who I want to watch more than anybody who's not Rodgers. And now I go, okay, who I thought was the fourth best quarterback at year's end that has room to grow, that is really, really finding himself in the two areas that I value. Doing things when stuff is perfect and doing things when things are not. Now the Chargers are looking at the situation and going, we have a rookie quarterback who's a superstar on a rookie contract. So let's go out and get some people. Let's maybe try and shore up that offensive line. Draft sign Johnson, first round guard, hoping that he can have the same effect that Rashawn Slater had on the left side as left tackle last year, who completely changed that side. Already one of the best left tackles in football as a rookie out of Northwestern last year. They're hoping Zion Johnson can do the same thing, guard out of Boston College. And if they're suddenly a good offensive line, oh baby. Trade for Khalil Mack. Get another person in here to take a little bit of pressure off Joey Bosa, who still has room to grow as a star. Sign the best cornerback on the market, one of the best five cornerbacks in the league, depending on your opinion, J.C. Jackson from New England. Just, all right, let's give some more things that maybe they're not directly related to our quarterback, but as I always know and talk about, everything is directly related to how we talk about quarterbacks. So if you're improving the defense, and you're improving the offensive line and all these things, hmm, what is Justin Herbert going to look like in year three? A dude who already has all of the tools, mental and physical. That's where my own projections and opinions start to formulate. And again, they might be wrong. They might. <laughs> I, I fail at these all the time. I was sitting there two years ago with Justin Herbert going, I don't know. Draft him at six. Okay, maybe. But that could come back to buy. I, I just don't know. Now I'm here banging the drum as much as anybody going. I think this guy is going to be MVP of the NFL in 2022. I do believe that. I mean, I bet him that my money is literally where my mouth is. And I'm confident in that bet for a variety of reasons, as I've explained. And the last one that I'll mention, uh, as I was reading over the weekend, I read a big profile on Brandon Staley, the coach of the Chargers. And the article, it was in The Athletic, it was by Daniel Popper, the Chargers beat writer. It's just kind of a deep dive about his coaching style. Super aggressive, uh, just analytical-based really into numbers and just the process that he goes through with his coaching staff, how they arrive at these decisions and how in advance they want as many possible things accounted for. So in the heat of battle, it's just like, no, no, no. We already know we are doing things X, Y, and Z. And very rarely do we have to make an on the fly decision as it pertains to situation of the game, down distance, clock, score, all that kind of stuff. So the thing that I want to end with and a thing that really just, I had already bet Herbert to win MVP, but it was additional fuel on kind of the flames of my projection, just how high I am on Herbert as a quarterback. It was stuff that Staley was saying within this interview. A former defensive coach, you remember him as the defensive coordinator of the Rams under McVay, who as a head coach has been extremely aggressive on offense, kind of interesting juxtaposition between his upbringing and just what he has leaned into as a head coach in his one season last year and moving into season two. And it's just kind of one of those questions like, oh, why is that? Like, what what's going on there? Do you not trust your defense? Uh, just is this like you're trying to revolutionize the way that people go for fourth down? What's going on here? Uh, and there are two paragraphs that I'll end today's show on. That it's Brandon Staley talking about kind of that mindset. Just why are we aggressive? Why do we lean into offense? Why are we going for it on these fourth downs? Again, this is coming from a defensive coach. What's going on there? These are the two paragraphs that I'll read. 
that, again, are, are getting me very excited for football season, for the future of Justin Herbert, because situation accounts a lot for quarterback success. And when you have somebody saying stuff like this, it gets me really excited for A, my MVP bet, and B, the future of somebody who I think could really be the very best quarterback in the league. So here we go. Brandon Staley to Daniel Popper of The Athletic. The first person that I was thinking about was Justin Herbert. I wasn't thinking about anything or anybody else. For me, I came into this and I said, I know I have a special quarterback. I also know part of my responsibility is to train him. Part of my responsibility is to get him ready. And I also know that if I take the ball out of his hands, I know that's going to do to him too. For him to grow and be as good as he's going to be, he needs to be in these pressure pack moments. And whether he throws it or not, it's not the point. The point is that the ball is in his hands. Thank you for listening to The Chris Rawl Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. Do not forget to go and sign up for my newsletter. It is free. It comes out every Wednesday. You can go to my website, chrisrawl.com. There's a subscribe button. Hit it. Prepare yourself. Football is on the horizon. It is here. I'll have many more things to say over the ensuing months as we deep dive into college football, NFL, and the two things that really just provide everybody happiness and joy in life. So thank you for listening today. I'll be back on Friday, which will be one day before Nebraska Northwestern. Peace. Peace.